This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Almighty God, open our hearts this evening. If necessary, break our hearts, that we would turn again to you. Speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Convict us of our sin. Comfort us with your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today, the world is on the brink of a pandemic. According to the BBC this afternoon, about 80,000 people have been infected by the coronavirus, and more than 2,700 have died. While most of those cases are presently in China, more than 1,200 cases have been confirmed in 34 countries. The World Health Organization reported today that the coronavirus is now spreading faster outside China. The numbers in Italy have surged to 400, and according to the CDC, it is only a matter of time before the virus begins to spread across North America. And by the way, I had to revise those numbers upwards since the lunchtime service. Meanwhile, for the fifth day in a row, share markets are in turmoil. There is rising fear. To add a real but not exactly comforting perspective, the CDC also reports that over the last decade, between 12,000 and 61,000 people die of flu every year, just in the U.S. But whatever may happen with the spread of the coronavirus, there is another pandemic that I want to warn you about. And it is far more serious. A condition and a threat that exists perpetually throughout the world. It is infinitely more dangerous and more deadly than the flu. It affects people of all ages. It's called sin. The church, the state, all manner of institutions, families, and marriages are afflicted by this pandemic I'm calling sin. And in the wake of this, there is pain, suffering, and death all around us. In the face of this very real crisis, we need to do something. This is not a test. This is real. We need to sound the alarm. This, in part, is what happens on Ash Wednesday. And so I pray that today we will be jolted out of the malaise that we may find ourselves in in relation to the crisis of our culture, our world, and our lives. The scriptures appointed for today remind us that the day of the Lord is coming and is closer now than it has ever been. I think one of the reasons we need to heed afresh this wake-up call is that we so 
easily become anesthetized to sin. So pervasive is sin all around us, in books, on the television, all over social media, at home, at work, and in the church, that we become desensitized to how serious the drift away from God really is. Constant exposure to sin disables us. It makes us not realize how serious, corrupting, and corrosive it is. And so our hearts become hard and cold. We become experts at running away or hiding or ignoring the stark realities. We become highly skilled at projecting an image of self-sufficiency or confidence or competence. But Ash Wednesday reminds us that from dust we are, and to dust we shall return. The prophet Joel declares, blow the trumpet. And this is not for a festival or a party, but as a warning. Sound the alarm. And so today I want us to look at this very powerful prophecy from Joel and see what God may be saying to us tonight. Joel was writing during a time of national calamity. The crisis had been brought on by a plague. It was a devastating plague of locusts. And the reference to the day of the Lord in the opening verse has several different applications and perspectives. The day of the Lord applied to what was happening then in the midst of these locusts. It was applied also to what was about to happen soon and to what would eventually happen when God brings final judgment. (coughs) There is a sense in which any way in which God moves powerfully in our lives may be thought of and viewed as a, as a day of the Lord. There are also major events in the life of a nation or the world, like a war, an economic crisis, or a deadly new virus that can be defining moments of truth in which God's verdict on a nation, a system, a way of being may be manifested Now, I say that hesitantly because I am not blaming God for most of the calamities that come our way. Though I do want to acknowledge his sovereignty and that he has not prevented certain things from happening. Whatever the source of plague, pestilence, death, or disease, we would do well to pay attention to what is going on around us, and ask, where is God? And what would he have us do? There is one great day in the future, fixed by God and known by God the Father alone, when doing nothing will not be an option. By the way, and this is a complete aside, there are all kinds of, I don't want you to be frightened of the coronavirus, not because I'm an expert, but because we put our trust in God. And any kind of national scare or tragedy is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for the church to serve, to love, to pray. There are many things that we can do. 
But one day, all will be summoned to God's throne. And then, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be a final reckoning. There will be judgment and a righting of the wrongs in the world. And that ultimate day of the Lord is coming. One of the shocking things about the calamity that the people were facing to whom the prophet Joel was speaking, this plague of locusts, is that it was brought about by God himself. The locusts were God's army. Verse 11 of that chapter, which we didn't read tonight, says this, the Lord utters his voice at the head of his army. God was bringing judgment on his people. But just when it looked as though all was lost, God appealed to the people to be reconciled. Even with disaster upon them, the Lord spoke in verse 12, which we did read, yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And so for us, until the final day of judgment comes, it's not too late for us to respond. Indeed, isn't that how God has always been with us? When Adam sins and hides in the garden, God comes looking for him, calling to him, where are you? The story of the prodigal son is all about God longing for the faithless, feckless son to come home. God does not want to destroy us. He wants to restore us. God is not looking in that for mere ritualistic acts. He wants our hearts to turn to him. He wants us to stop our running and hiding and doing it my way. He wants us, he invites us to come home. And God wants us to return to him fully. Not, not just to be physically present while being absent emotionally or mentally or spiritually. That's, that's awful. The Lord is like a properly jealous husband because he loves his wife, the church. We are his bride and he wants us back. And it seems that there are two conditions that are required for us to be reunited with God. He wants a whole heart and he wants a broken heart. These two things, wholeheartedness and brokenheartedness, also, perhaps surprisingly, describe the very heart of God for his people, for all whom he has made in his image. When our hearts are broken, when we in our willfulness, sinfulness, and brokenness finally turn to God, we likely may experience weeping, maybe fasting and mourning, as these things just flow from our, the very depths of our being. If you have ever faced real desolation, then you will likely know what I'm talking about. The death of a loved one, the, the death of a marriage, the, the crushing of one's dreams. When these things happen, we may find that tears flow in unending sobs, mourning for that which is lost and cannot be restored, fasting, perhaps 
driven to it, fasting from those things that distract us from God because we're driven to our knees. And these things are powerful. They're healing and cleansing, at least they can be. Of course, merely to cry and mourn and fast without that inner brokenness will bring only exhaustion. It will not bring healing or forgiveness or anything good. But did you notice that fasting, weeping, and mourning are all to do with dying and death? These are the actions, this fasting and weeping, these are the actions of someone who has been bereaved. And that makes sense, for God is concerned about the death of a relationship, his relationship with his people. When we break our relationship with God, he is heartbroken. I wonder, do you know that? And if you do, you face a choice, as, as we do any time that there's a broken relationship. Either we can turn our back on God and walk away from him, or we can return to him. We can run to him. And that's true in life every day. All around us, there are broken human relationships between friends or between colleagues, between children and parents, between husbands and wives. And when we're in the midst of brokenness, weeping and fasting and mourning are entirely appropriate. Now, sadly, we live in a culture that discourages such outward displays of raw emotion, except, I guess, on the so-called and rather misnamed reality TV. How readily we put on a brave face. We, we hide behind our outward expressions of competence or togetherness. We prefer to keep hidden the brokenness of our lives, keeping it all together and pretending that all is well. It's very sad. I mean, I guess if we've decided that we will not turn back to God, if we will not repent, then I guess in a sick sort of way, that's actually a sensible strategy, or at least it's a consistent way to behave. But it is not the way to life and wholeness, to freedom and joy. Much better is to repent. This, then, is the word of God through the prophet Joel. Returning to the Lord is the only way that devastation may find healing. Joel knows the trustworthiness of a person's word depends on his or her character. If God were some capricious, vengeful, angry God, then an appeal to return home would be like appealing to an abuser to return... Uh, uh, an appeal to an abused person to return to him his or her abuser. But our God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. You know, if you have massively and repeatedly betrayed someone, failed someone, and been unfaithful to someone, what are the chances of that person having you back, whether it's an employer or a friend or a spouse? Frankly, humanly speaking, the chances are slim but Joel tells us that we can trust God. No matter how much we have betrayed him, we can return to him and we can trust his character. 
Hear again how Joel describes God in verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relents from punishing. Now the next verse, verse 14, at first sight is, it's sobering and it's a little bit less reassuring, but I don't want to gloss over it. Joel says, who knows whether God will not turn and relent. Now Joel believes that if we turn, God will have a blessing for us, but he's not certain. But you know, we've heard that kind of cry before in the Bible. Two examples I want to give you are of two different kings who use that very phrase in the context of repenting for their own wickedness. First, we encountered in the book of Jonah, the king of the wicked Assyrian city of Nineveh was so shaken by God's declaration of judgment through Jonah that he declared a nationwide fast and national repenting. And he says this, who knows, God may yet repent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we perish not. And did he? Did God turn from his righteous anger? Yes. And then we encounter the same thing with King David. After his personal wickedness is uncovered by the and through the prophet Nathan, David, who was guilty of adultery slash rape and murder, David entered a time of mourning with sackcloth and ashes. Bathsheba's baby, the product of his sexual exploitation, lies sick. And David says, who knows? God may be gracious to me and the child may live. Was God gracious to David? Yes. Did he forgive David and restore him? Yes. Was the baby spared? No. Though we can always be confident of the unchanging character of God, and we can always be certain of a gracious response from God, we must never presume upon the outcome of our requests in every way. We are not God. Only the Lord is God. And there are consequences for sin. And there are consequences for our rebellion and selfishness that may not get undone. But the cries of who knows from the prophet Joel, from the king of Nineveh, and from King David are the cries of contrite and broken hearts which God will not despise. Indeed, we will hear those words in our service today from Psalm 51, the psalm David wrote after his sin was exposed. We can always humbly pray and ask with confidence, but we must do so in genuine humility, not insisting on our own way. These passages are not easy. But let's note also in verse 16, Joel calls the people to return to the Lord together. This is a corporate response. He calls for the trumpet to be sounded again, not <clears throat> the alarm bell this time, but the call together. He, he calls a solemn assembly. 
And gathering at the, together at the temple was a, an effective and practical way for the people to return to the Lord. And it was intergenerational, including older people and children, even nursing babies. And I'm glad we have all such represented here in the congregation tonight. Thank you for coming out on this wet evening. This is a good way for us to begin Lent. This is a good way for us to return to the Lord. And as God's people, we're not merely a collection of individuals who have individual sins and shortcomings to confess, though of course we do. No, the effects of sin pervade the whole nation, culture, society, and sadly, even the church. Now, there may come a time when gathering together in large numbers like this won't actually be wise for perhaps a season, depending on what happens with the coronavirus. I don't know. But today, and week by week, we come to church because God calls us to come. We gather in our community groups, believing that God is with us. And the starting point sometimes is simply showing up. And if today you've simply shown up, good for you. This evening on this Ash Wednesday, we gather together in penitence and in faith to face the brutal facts of our sin before a holy, just, and thank God, merciful God. Finally, in this passage, Joel exhorts the priests to get real with God. Their job is not simply to do it by the book. More is required than simply leading the prayers and preaching the word and performing their professional duty. They are called to stand between the people and the altar and weep. They are to make themselves vulnerable, no matter the cost. And I thank God for all the faithful prophets and priests who have gone before us and who have done this. Well, in a moment, you, you will be invited to come forward to have ashes placed on your forehead. Please don't let these ashes be a mere outward symbol with no inner significance. Rather, come humbly before your Maker. Receive the mark of the cross, the greatest symbol of reconciliation that there is. And so with St. Paul, I entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing you have made and forgive the sins of all who are penitent. In our brokenness, create in us new and contrite hearts that we, knowing how sinful and selfish we are, may receive from you the God of all mercy, forgiveness, healing, and renewal this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.